0: Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, good morning. Uh, it, is, it is good uh, to be with you again this morning. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Philippians chapter 4. This morning, we kind of finish our series on the book of Philippians. As as you're doing that, I just want to kind of remind you uh, of the context uh, of Philippians as a whole. And uh, providentially, this morning's passage is is actually is really appropriate for us uh, this morning. This morning, we're going to pray over Chris and Michelle Rasmussen and, and their two boys as as they follow God's calling uh, off to Kansas City. And in a very real way, this morning. Uh, whatever text it was going to be, this morning is, is really our last charge as a church to the Rasmussens. And, and I, I think it's, it's really appropriate that this is uh, the, the text that God, again, providentially is allowing us to go through this morning. And yet, um, so while, while this uh, certainly has a lot to say as, as we send them out, this is also a text that is very important for us. The, the Spirit um, applies it to, to our lives as well. And it's really, in God's, you know, God's sovereign uh, lordship, their transition and, and remembering that and, and looking at that uh, is really a wonderful opportunity for us to also uh, have, have an opportunity to, to reflect on our own hearts and, and take this same charge that, that Paul is giving to the church in Philippi, uh, that, that the Spirit is giving to the Rasmussens. Also, he's giving that same charge to us as well. And remember the, the context of the, the book of Philippians. Philippians was written to a church that's in this increasingly challenging culture. They, they are experiencing hostility toward the gospel, hostility toward the church. It's, it's increasing. And Paul is writing to the church in Philippi from prison, remember, and he, he says, I want you to continue to live out your calling as, as citizens of the kingdom, and I want you to live lives that are worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's really kind of his thesis statement in Philippians uh, as a whole, and and he, he, he unpacks that in Philippians chapter two and Philippians chapter three, and then he comes to to Philippians chapter four. He's coming to the end of his letter, and he ends it with this final charge: Philippians four verse one. Therefore, okay, so so looking backward, therefore, my brothers, whom I long or love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm thus in the Lord. And that's Paul's charge to the, to the church in Philippi. And, and the word thus there is, is, is really pointing forward. He says, basically, this is how I want you to stand firm as you are experiencing hardship, as you are experiencing this turmoil, that, that this is how I want you to persevere in the gospel. At this point, Paul has no idea if he's ever going to see the church in Philippi again. He's hopeful we see that in Philippians chapter 1. He's hopeful, but, but he also recognizes this isn't any sort of guarantee. And so he reaches the end of his letter, and, and he says, In light of everything that I've said so far, do this. Stand firm in the Lord. And this is how I want you to stand firm. And Can you think of, of, of a better application, more appropriate one for us to commit ourselves, each and every one of us, to resolve, to stir ourselves up this morning toward that end, to, to be a people that endure, to be a, a Christian people who stand firm in the gospel. And that's the simple charge of this passage. We walk away with just one thing. I hope it's that. The call of Jesus is a lifelong call to stand firm. The call of Jesus is a lifelong call to stand firm to stand firm. See, Paul's phrase here, stand firm, it's a, it's a very powerful one to me. It, it conjures up images of, of a lighthouse, you know, just standing firm, and it's in this onslaught of, of winds and, and waves, and yet it is enduring in the midst of that storm. And this that's the exact same thing that Paul is referring to here. This call of Jesus is this lifelong call for us to be a people who stand firm, that we don't fall away, that we don't turn away we don't cower in the face of the storms of life but instead we're a people who endure and yet unless we think that this call to, to endure and to stand firm is just uh, stand firm is just this endorsement of a mindset that says all i got to do is just hunker down all i got to do is just make it through wait out this life i don't have to continue to make progress in the christian life paul paints a very different picture notice His understanding of of Christian endurance from earlier in the book of Philippians, he says this, "'Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel.'" You see, standing firm is not just not falling away, but it's also this intentional striving forward in the faith. It's this intentional pursuit of Jesus. The idea that we can just hunker down and and the current, uh, uh, hunker down and, and be content with, with where we currently are in the growth of the gospel makes no sense to Paul. Remember, this is, this is Paul. He, he wrote just a few verses later in Philippians chapter 3, these words, "'Not that I've already obtained this, or am already perfect.'" But I press on to make it my, known, my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You see, standing firm is something that is, that is very active. It's a pursuit of the one who left heaven to come and pursue us First, And and as we explore Philippians 4, and I know we we looked at part of Philippians 4 last week, but I just want to give us a broad, large overview picture of, of what Philippians 4 is about. We're going to see that that's exactly the case, that we are called to be a people who pursue Jesus. And Paul gives us five commands. Some of them are explicit here in Philippians 4. Some of them are just implicit, but he fleshes out what it means for us to be a people who stand firm in the Lord. With these five commands. And so, rest of our time this morning, let's go ahead and explore this chapter. But before we do that, let's uh, let's take a moment and pray for God's presence to be with us and and uh, for his blessing to be with us as well. Would you pray with me? Lord, It is um, it is it is our earnest desire that we would be a people who stand firm in the Lord. And God, I ask that as we consider what it means to do just that, from this passage, that your spirit would speak to us and guide us. I ask that would be true of, of each of us this morning, that you would use your word to reveal to us areas of our lives where we are more conformed to the world and to the kingdom of your Son. Strengthen us, encourage us, enable us to follow you in a broken world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so what, what does it mean for us to be a people who, who would stand firm in the gospel or stand firm in the Lord? If you were to answer this question, and you were only given a couple paragraphs to explain this is how you stand firm in the Lord, what would you include? And many of us would, would say something like, well, make sure that you go to church, or make sure you're praying enough, or make sure you read your Bible more. And those are, those are certainly good things, but perhaps surprisingly, Paul doesn't mention any of those. Let's consider what Paul says first in verses 2 and 3. I entreat Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clements and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. I think it's worth noting that Paul, that for Paul, the, the Christian life is never something that is done as an individual. It's, it's not primarily individualistic. Being a faithful Christian is always done in the context of Christian community, and significantly. I think for, for us, that, that's really important in the midst of, of this pandemic as we've been scattered and, and there is this temptation for us to just pull away from the church. I think it's significant for us to recognize that, it, that if we're not regularly a part of, of a Christian community, a local church, then it will be hard, if not downright impossible, for us to stand firm in the Lord. And that's really the framework for, Paul, for Paul's first command here for this, this idea of endurance in the faith. We, if we're going to stand firm in the gospel, we have to value unity over preference. We have to value unity over preference. Church unity is infinitely more important than personal preference, no matter how strongly I may feel about those preferences. And now last week, Pastor Kurt walked us through these verses, and and he, he reminded us that there are qualifications for church unity. Church unity is not the end goal if it means that we have to sacrifice our fidelity or our faithfulness to the gospel. Paul points out that agreement between Euodia and Syntyche here in verse 2, it is to be done in the Lord. Paul isn't saying sacrifice faithfulness to the gospel for the sake of getting along. He's instead saying the gospel is the center. The gospel is the center upon which you must unite. That is what unites us. Church unity must be centered. It should orbit around the gospel. Now, this is clear in the original Greek because Paul actually, his charge here to agree in the Lord, it's actually the exact same phrase that he uses in Philippians chapter 2, verse 2, when he commands all of the church to have the same mind. Here, that's what we see what it means to have the, this core agreement in the church, Philippians chapter 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You see, unity is, is centered on the gospel. It's not centered on preferences. And I'll, I'll be honest, sometimes it takes wisdom to discern the difference. Because a lot of times, we can have a tendency to take our preferences and we can actually elevate them to a place of prominence. We, we do this with theological issues all the time. We take things that are probably secondary or, or tertiary or, or even lower than that, and we take those and, and we make them primary. And we can have this mindset, this tendency that says, if you don't agree with my understanding of the end times, or, or if you don't under, uh, agree with my understanding of, of election, then you're headed down a dangerous path. And, and you're, just, you're just a few steps away, a few wrong conclusions away from completely abandoning the faith. Unity takes wisdom to recognize what is a core essential. What is a core commitment of the gospel? And what's more, a commitment to see that that gospel goes forth. It it doesn't just stay with us. Unity is committed to the spread of the gospel, not just to being faithful to the gospel, but seeing that faithfulness to the gospel spread forth beyond church walls. Do we want to be a people who stand firm? We must value unity over our preferences. Let's keep moving. Verses four through seven. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding... Will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There's a lot in those verses to peel apart. And we actually uh, did that a couple months ago as we were just entering into this pandemic. We looked at at Philippians chapter 4 and these verses in particular. But I just want to look at this in broad strokes, kind of sum it up in just one main charge that Paul gives on how we can stand firm. What's the theme that Paul uses to unite everything here? Notice, it starts with this command to rejoice. And what does he end with? Well, he ends with this peace that comes when we rejoice, and that peace is set against anxiety. And that's our second command, really. As we're we're called to stand firm, it's to choose joy over anxiety. Choosing joy over anxiety. Joy persistent theme in Philippians. We've seen that very clearly over the last couple months as we've worked our way through this book over and over and over again. Paul is calling the church in Philippi to, to place their joy in a place that is external to their circumstances, to place their joy in the Lord Jesus, to not place it or center it on their circumstances. And he points to himself as an example of that, of this commitment. And, and I want us to be aware that this isn't something that comes naturally. It isn't something that comes passively. It, it, it is instead a commitment that, that Paul makes. It's a commitment that he's charging the church in, in Philippi to make. It's, it's a commitment that he's charging us to make as well, to be a people who are joyful rather than anxious. It's not something that comes passively. Now, in this framework, consider how joy and anxiety, they're they're really just polar opposites here. What is anxiety? Where does worry come from? Well, at its core, worry is this paralysis that comes from this inability to control our circumstances, right? So something's out of my control, then I worry about it. I don't worry about things that are in my control. I don't get anxious about those things that I already know to be uh, decided or or true or or things that are are a sure thing. Worry flourishes in the unknowns and the uncertainties of life. It's, It's like the mold, that, that grows in the darkness of a lack of clarity about the future. That's where anxiety comes from. So in, a, in its essence, worry is rooted in this inability to fully control or even to, to just know our circumstances and what is coming toward us in the future. So that's, that's worry. In contrast, joy comes from recognizing that even these things that are outside of our control that that i don't know about even those things they're still under the control of the Lord Jesus. In fact, nothing is outside of the control of the Lord Jesus. And there is joy in freedom that comes from entrusting those things that by their very nature, those very same circumstances, that can be anxiety-inducing if we're not careful, to recognize that if we entrust those to the Lord who loves us, who cares for us, and intends to do good for us and never to harm us, to entrust those into his hands, we can say, you know what, Lord? I will rejoice no matter my circumstances. But again, joy is not something that is that is passive, at least not for most of us, and, and not most of the time for us. There are seasons of life where joy just comes naturally. But not always. Not even most of the time. It takes intentional, concerted effort to not worry when we find ourselves in circumstances that are kind of anxiety-inducing, to stand firm is to recognize the stress of the circumstances, to recognize how little is in our control, and then still say in the midst of that, hey, you know what? Though my heart is despairing, though my, my heart is worrying, I choose to trust the Lord. Back in April, at the beginning of this pandemic, we introduced a song called I Will Trust My Savior Jesus. And, and I just love the, the, the richness of the lyrics of this song. Um, I will trust my Savior, Jesus. The, the first, first uh, verse goes, this, goes like this. It talks about the, this heart of, of a conscious effort to trust Jesus, to place our joy in Jesus as opposed to worrying about circumstances outside of our control. It says this, I will trust my Savior, Jesus, when my darkest doubts befall. Trust him. When to simply trust him is the hardest thing of all. That is this commitment to joy rather than to anxiety. When we are called to stand firm. It means that we are a people who pursue joy, not just in the easy seasons of life, but when our heart is trending or, or tending toward anxiety and worry and the fear of the known. It is to say, it is concerted effort in our lives to say, I'm especially going to trust him in these moments right now when the very idea of trusting him is the hardest thing of all, when it is the furthest thing from my mind this is where I will resolve. I will commit myself to trust in him and to rejoice in the Lord. But how? Well, Paul gives us the answer in verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Joy thrives and worry dies when we do what? Well, it's when we pray, right? When we offer up our requests to the Lord, when we bring those circumstances, when we bring those challenges, those uncertainties to the Lord who reigns, who remains seated on his throne, that's where joy flourishes and worry dies. When we bring our concerns to God in prayer. But there's another thing. There's another component here in this verse. It's not just bring whatever is burdening you to the Lord in prayer. It's also do this with thanksgiving. In other words, prayer may be the soil where joy grows, but it's not enough to just remove the weeds, to get rid of the things, to bring our concerns to God. We also must consciously be looking back in our lives to to what God has already done for us, to what God has been doing in the lives of other people, to have our eyes open to the work of God in the past. And that inspires two things. First, it's a source of joy itself. We can say hey, you know what? The Lord does care for me. He does love me. I've seen it time and time and time again in my life, and here is evidence of that. And and, and honestly, one of the most important things you can do in a a season where you're finding yourselves uh, struggling with anxiety and not being joyful is to take five minutes every single day and to write down answers to prayer requests. I'm gonna... uh, they don't have to be full answers, just progress. A lot of my prayers for my kids, they're, they're really big prayers. Like that my, my children would produce the fruit of the Spirit. Well, how do exactly do I say, okay, well, that prayer has been answered. I can check that off. I don't have to pray for that anymore. It's, it's really hard, right? That's something I'm going to be praying for them for the rest of my life. And yet, there is progress. And so when I see that, that my Another prayer request is, is we, we ask that, that the Lord would help our, our children to be wise. And so there are seasons and there are moments each and every day or, or every few days or a couple times a week where our children are making wise choices. And, and to recognize that and say, hey, you know what? God is answering prayers. God is being faithful. My children are not wise. I'm not completely wise. It's not like I've arrived and yet there's been progress made. God is answering prayer. And so when we begin to write those things down, when we look back at the past and remember and recognize how God is at work, it's a source of joy. And we can say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for being a God who cares for me, who loves me, and who will take care of me, and who answers prayer. But there's another thing. It's a source of confidence for the future. When we begin to write down the ways that God has answered prayer in the past, it gives us confidence to say, hey, you know what? The Lord cares for me. The Lord loves me. He intends my good in the past. He will surely continue to do it in the future. That's Paul's perspective in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, a very uh, uh, well-known verse, Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The height of God's love is is shown on the cross. And that cross took place while we were still sinners, when we were at our worst, when we were actually, Paul says in other passages, enemies of the cross, that we were estranged from God, that we were destined for wrath, that we were at our very worst. And God loved us. And if God loved us then, then we can have the utmost confidence that God is not going to stop loving us now, that he is not going to abandon us, that he is not going to leave us. We have this confidence that we can stand firm in the call of, joy, uh, of Jesus because of his love, so we can choose joy over anxiety. Paul continues verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true... Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. If you want to stand firm in the Lord, then Paul gives us another command right here. This is a a crucial one. Intentionally pursue holy thinking. Intentionally pursue holy holy thinking. Care about your thought life. Care about where your mind wanders when it has moments to daydream or when it has moments to, to go wherever it wants to. Where do is, what does your mind run to for solace? What is your default mindset of, of thinking? Because that's a really important question, because your thought life will determine the trajectory of your life. Whatever occupies your thought life the most is or will become the most important thing to you in your life. There's a really helpful book about this topic by James K.A. Smith. He's a, is a professor in Michigan. It's called You Are What You Love. And in this book, he argues that, that, what you, that we become the things that we most admire, the things that we most think about, and the things that we dwell on the most. See, the reality is all of us are being discipled. Every moment of our lives, we are being discipled. We are being transformed. We are being influenced. We are being shaped and molded. The question is, what is discipling us? Or or what is shaping us, transforming us, molding us? Is our primary source of discipleship, our favorite sitcom, our favorite reality TV show? Is our primary source of discipleship, our favorite cable news channel? Or source, whether it's Fox News or MSMDC. Is our social media, the echo chamber, which we agree with, is that our primary source of discipleship? Is our primary source of discipleship and influence? Is it ESPN? Is it sports? No matter the source, the more that we consume these things, the more that it begins to occupy our thoughts, and the more that it begins to literally rewire our brain to think that way. And I'm going to, I'm just going to speak candidly. This is why social media, like Facebook and Twitter, it's so incredibly dangerous. I'm probably going to go on a soapbox here. Algorithms manipulate us and our thought life at the most basic level. They do it so that way they can gain more money. Algorithms, for the sake of money, actually transform our discipleship. What transforms us, what influences us. Here's how it works Facebook's algorithm, and I'm going to pick on Facebook here. I'm not going to apologize for that. Facebook's algorithm understands what you are engaging with and what you are not engaging with. And, And so, in order for you to spend, to get you to spend more time on Facebook and, and the, uh, again, the reason is, so that way you pass more advertisements, so that way Facebook can collect more money, they will begin to show you more of what you engage with and less of what you don't engage with, all right? So that, that's pretty straightforward, right? Well, here's the, here's the really big challenge. You become increasingly exposed to one way of thinking, One way of seeing the world and you begin to be shielded from another way of thinking. And when that happens, this one way of thinking can subtly become the only right way of thinking. And then, as that way of thinking becomes increasingly, uh, it increasingly consumes every single thing that you are exposed to, you begin to, to think about those things more and more. That begins to consume your thought life more and more and more. And unconsciously, your life is guided by and shaped by what Facebook deems to be most appropriate to show you, regardless of your best interests. And again, it's only for the sake of money. Your discipleship is being manipulated for the sake of money. And and speaking candidly, I believe many of us, if not most of us, are more influenced by and discipled by social media or our favorite news source or television than we are by Scripture. I think that's the case for, for many of us, if not most of us. I can look back to the various seasons of my life. I can see that's certainly the case. And, and the worst part is that it's not even a conscious decision. It's not even conscious for in those seasons of life for me to be, say, you know what, I'm, I'm okay with my discipleship from Scripture. You know what, I'm actually going to go ahead and, and I'm going to be discipled by Facebook and, and this particular agenda for a while. It's the flow of our thoughts. It's just something that happens to us. And that's why Paul is, is so forward here when he's talking about changing the way of our thinking. He says, be intentional, pursue holy thoughts. This is a battle that is waged each and every day within us. And I'm, I'm most aware of this in my own life. I am most aware of this battle each and every morning. First thing that I do when I wake up, I, I need to wake up and, and showering is the way That I I wake up. And while I'm in the shower, my mind often drifts to the latest bit of entertainment that I consumed, or or the box scores from the previous day, or or analyzing the most recent news story. And it takes a concerted effort when my mind wanders down these paths to, to focus my eyes on the Lord Jesus. And that happens each and every day. I have to be intentional in pursuing holy thoughts throughout the day. Do we want to be a people who stand firm? Then we must intentionally pursue holy thinking, that we cannot let our our thought life be governed by, be discipled by what we expose ourselves to. That we have to be intentional in thinking of whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, whatever is excellent, whatever is worthy of praise. We pursue holy thinking. As Paul nears the end of, of this letter, he enters into some reflection on his relationship with the Philippians, but, but even in this reflection we we see what it means to stand firm. Verse ten. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, but I for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me I was um, I was in college at the same time that Tim Tebow uh, was attending Florida. I mean many of us know who Tim Tebow is Heisman Trophy winner, um, national champion at Florida um, he was he was all the rage in, in many Christian circles, and I'm not saying that he shouldn't have been. Um, <laughs> I'm not saying he should have been either. Uh, but Tebow but was all the rage in some Christian circles because he frequently, I mean, he was very outspoken about his faith. He still is. Um, and one of the things that he was well known for is that, um, and he is actually the reason why this got banned in many um, sporting events, uh, he, he would frequently use his eye black, so underneath his eyes, as scripture messages. And so he, he would put John 3.16, and you know people would see him because uh, he was very prominent, and, you know, they'd look, oh, what's John 3.16 say? That looks like a Bible verse, and they'd go look it up. Another one, um, <laughs> of course, was Philippians 4.13. It's a nice thought, Philippians 4.13, the last bit that we just read there, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's, it's a great thought that the Lord Jesus is on my side, and I can win this football game. I can do whatever I, I put my mind to, and I'm not trying to disparage Tim Tebow, Someone The Lord has used him in, in incredible ways, good ways, but let's be honest, that's not what Paul is talking about here. That's not at all what Paul has in mind. This section isn't a, a Christianized version of self-help and goal-setting that says, hey, if I got Jesus, I can do anything. That's not at all what Paul is saying here. He's, he's got something very specific in mind. He's talking about contentment. And that's an incredibly important charge for us in our overly materialistic, overly connected world where we we can see what other people have and and become intimately aware or increasingly aware of what we don't have. And contentment is so key to standing firm. Paul gives us this charge here. Learn contentment, unlearn craving. This hunger for more, for consumerism. Remember this background of Philippians. Paul has just received a, a gift from the church in Philippi. He's, he's in a Roman prison. And, and that's what he means when he says, here at the beginning, I rejoice that you have revived your concern for me. He's again, he's expressing his gratitude for the, to, uh, to the church in Philippi that they have supported him, that they have sent him this gift in Rome. But Paul doesn't stop there, does he? Just in case they think that he is desperate for money or that, that he is in all of this for the money, he says that, however... And whatever God provides, it is enough for him. Paul is so confident in God's fatherly care for him that whether it is through the generous gift of the Philippians or if, whether it's barely scrounging together scraps, he co- is content that his father is going to meet his needs. Paul has experienced seasons of plenty. He's, he's dined with the rich. He's, he's lived in the upper crust of, of society and he's lived amongst the poor, in seasons of famine. He's, He's had no idea where his next meal is going to come from. These circumstances are not what is important. A trust in the Lord Jesus, him who strengthens me, that's the anchor that endures through the quiet waters of plenty and the chaotic storms of nothingness. See, Paul's wording here about contentment is very important. How does he say that he reached this place of contentment? Verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He learned it. Like so much else that we have seen in this chapter this morning, contentment is not something that comes to us naturally. It has to be learned. It has to be ingrained within us. It is a a cause or a process of discipleship. Paul doesn't say that contentment was just something that was important when he was facing these seasons of famine. He also says contentment is just as important when he has abundance. And this is so countercultural to us today. When we experience a lack of contentment today, all too often it's qualified. All too often we'll say, once I have a little bit more, then I will be content. So once or if, then I'll be content. Once I have a bit nicer of a car, then I will be content. Once I finish remodeling the bathroom or replace the carpet in the living room, then I will be content. Once I have one more trinket for my hobby, then I won't need to spend any more. You see, our world teaches us that contentment is something that is only achieved by getting just a little bit more, just a little bit more than what you have. Of course, I can speak from experience, from my own life, that a little bit more is a constantly moving goalpost. It is something that is always a little bit more. There's always one more thing or, or the next thing. It doesn't matter if you have $100 to your name or $100 million to your name. There is no such thing as contentment once you get a little bit more. To learn contentment, we have to unlearn craving first. To point back to Paul's charge to pursue holy thinking. We have to stop being discipled by a consumeristic culture. Instead say, whether I am in relative plenty or relative lack, I am content. And that does not come naturally. It's antithetical to the heart of our world that's filled with billboards, filled with advertisement, filled with comparisons. that saying more, more, more. And true contentment says, wherever I am or a little, it is enough. And if I lose what I have, it is still enough. How can we say that? Much less believe that. So laughable in the world's eyes. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Do you struggle with how little you have compared to others? The experiences that you get to have. You see friends in social media. they're, They're traveling all the time. They get to do all of these fun things on the water and you're just trying to make ends meet. Do you just think satisfaction is just around the corner if you just have a little bit more, such a heart is key to standing firm. This heart that says, I am content. I have enough because of the Lord Jesus and in the strength that only he provides. No matter what we have, whether it is little or whether it is plenty, whether we're in a season of famine or a season of abundance, Paul urges us to follow his example, to unlearn craving and to begin to learn contentment through the strength that comes the Lord Jesus. And that charge transitions into the final one, the end of Philippians, Paul gives one final area of life where we must stand firm. It's generosity. Do you want to stand firm in the gospel? Stand firm in the Lord. Endure to the end, continue to pursue Jesus, grow like to be more like Jesus, is to be generous. And Paul is, is very specifically talking, not just about time and talents. He's talking about your money. Paul says, if you want to stand firm, you have to make generosity with your finances your first priority. Verses 14 through 20. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Here we see, here again, we see that Paul is referencing his relationship with the Philippians. And having just received this gift from the church in Philippi, he recalls how they did the exact same thing in the past. When Paul was actually kicked out of Philippi, and began to, to minister throughout Greece, they were the only ones who, who sp- sponsored him, who supported him as a missionary as he was doing those things. But notice, notice how he frames the importance of generosity he, here. He doesn't say, good, you're generous again, so that way my needs are being met. That's not at all what he says. Verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Paul is incredibly grateful to the Philippians for their generosity, but his gratitude is actually isn't so much because he's the recipient uh, of that gift, but instead because they're increasing in generosity, that they are being more generous with their resources, that, that Paul recognizes that, that one of the keys to this idea of learning commitment and killing a consumeristic culture, uh, unlearning, unlearning craving, is to give away money. That's, that completely is backwards in, in, to a mindset that's more, 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 more than giving away money. Paul wants the church to be generous with their finances, not for his own financial profit, but because he recognizes that this is a key part of Christian discipleship. Martin Luther in the 1500s once said, there are three conversions that are needed for the Christian the conversion of the heart, the conversion of the mind, and the conversion of the pocketbook. What he's, what he's saying there is there's a conversion of the heart that takes place. That our, our affections, what we long for, the, the things that delight us, that transforms or should transform when we become a Christian. That we begin to love the things of Jesus more and more than the things of this world. There's this conversion of the mind that takes place. What we think about is transformed. And then there is a conversion of the pocketbook or of our finances. That being a Christian is synonymous with being generous with our finances, regardless of whether we're in a season of, of abundance or in a season of famine. Paul continues, verse 18. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Notice how Paul describes this gift from the Philippians. He calls it a, a fragrant offering. It's the sacrifice that is pleasing to God. And, and you, do you know why giving is, is so important as a part of, of Christian maturity? of being faithful, of standing firm in the Christian life, of enduring to to the end. Why why is giving such a big deal? It's not so that way the the church can can pay its bills. It's not because God needs your money. It's not even because God wants your money. He's the Lord of all the universe. He's the creator of the entire universe. He doesn't lack, he lacks for nothing. God doesn't, want your money. God wants your heart. And he knows, because he created you, and created me, he knows that your heart and your money are connected. You spend money on the things that are most closely connected to your heart. The things that you love the most are the things... That you will spend money on. I'll use an example from my own life. I, you know, I I don't golf, so I don't spend money on golf. But I love riding my bike, and so I will spend money on my bike. There is a connection here between the things that I love and the money that I spend. Jesus says basically the exact same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. For wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The exact same thing is true. Wherever your heart is, that's where your treasure is going to go as well. This is why generosity is an act of worship. It's because it's a reordering of our priorities. And Paul delights that the Philippians are showing generosity, not at all because he is the recipient of that and his needs are being met, but because it's an act of worship. It's proof positive that they are growing in their faith, that they are standing firm, that God is at work in them, that the Spirit of God is transforming them and making them more and more like Christ Jesus. At the beginning of the book of Philippians, Paul's prayer is that they would increasingly produce the fruit of righteousness, and this is a part of that fruit. I have no idea what you give, I, I have no idea. Except for Crystal. I, I guess I, I know how much Crystal gives. I, I have no idea what anyone in our congregation gives. So if it feels like I'm singling you out, I'm not. But generosity is such a big deal because where your finances go, your heart goes also. And that's why Paul mentions it while urging this church to, to persevere and to, to stand firm, to make generosity your first priority, is an act of worship, especially in our consumeristic culture. I think it's an area where all of us can grow in, our, in grace and to grow in worship. And the answer, again, is found in Philippians 4. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The call of Jesus is a lifelong call to stand firm. It's not passive. It's an active pursuit of the one who first pursued us. And no matter your circumstances, it's a charge that can be lived out through the power of the Spirit. Just consider Paul's comments as he closes this letter. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. Okay, so those, you know, he's in Rome. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you, with your spirit. Paul closes this letter and he makes mention of Caesar's household. He says the gospel has even taken root there in the heart of Rome, in the heart of this pagan empire, in the heart of the capital of the entire known world. The gospel has taken root. People are standing firm. The call of Jesus is this lifelong call to stand firm. It is a call to unity in the midst of, of the community that God has called us to. It's this calling to joy. It's a call to holy thinking. It's a call to commitment. It's a call to generosity. And it can take place no matter where You are, no matter what your circumstances are. It can take place even in the heart of the empire that is most opposed to the gospel. The call of Jesus is a lifelong call to stand firm. Would you stand firm and endure to the end? Let's pray. God, I I ask that through your spirit and your grace and in your mercy that you would help us to endure. Strengthen us, Lord. Help us to be a people who pursue unity. Even if it's not exactly the way we would want it to be. To be a people who pursue joy, even when our natural tendency is to worry. To be a people who pursue holy thinking when our natural tendency is to drift and think about other things and be discipled by the world. Help us to be a people who are content with whatever you have given us and whatever the future holds, whether that is plenty or lack and loss of what we have. God, let us help us be a people who are generous with our finances. Help us to see that as a very tangible way to worship you, to love you, that you call us, Two, not because you want our money, but because you want our heart. God, we look at this, this list of, of charges and I, I confess that this is impossible on my own. So through your spirit, we ask that you would help us, that you would strengthen us. You would empower us, Lord Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.